What's going on? Welcome into the Pelicans podcast presented by SeatGeek on this Wednesday. I'm Daniel Salerson. Hope everyone is having a great day. We are taping this actually on a Tuesday here as I'm joined by Ben Golliver as the Pelicans are playing the Nets tonight. But we wanted to get Ben on because he has a new book. He's an NBA writer for the Washington Post and he has a book coming out called Bubble Ball Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season. And he joins us now on today's Pelicans podcast. Ben, I appreciate the time. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You know, the Pelicans stay might have been a little short down there in the bubble, but it was eventful. Uh, you know, we got some uh, a look at Zion Williamson, a lot of hype around him. I think you guys were on national television, what, like seven of your eight games. Uh, so, you know, maybe not the absolute best memories, but certainly a building experience for this year. I think especially for some of the younger players there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. But first off, let's talk about the book. What prompted you to write this story about your your time inside the bubble? Well, look, I'd always wanted to write a book. I've been covering the NBA since 2007, but I just never had the right idea. And this one sort of fell on my lap. I mean, even before I got down in the bubble, I felt like 2020 was shaping up to be one of the most important years in NBA history. I mean, right up there with you know, 1980 and Magic Johnson showing up or 92 with the Dream Team or 2003 when the LeBron era began. Uh, because you had the overseas controversy with Hong Kong and China. You had Kobe Bryant's death. You had David Stern's death. You had the shutdown in the middle of the season, which potentially threatened, you know, to not be able to crown a champion. And that was all before they decided to send all the best players in the world to Disney World of all places to try to play this uh, this playoffs, you know, through the, you know, throughout and crown a champion. So for me, um, it just seemed like this was the right moment. And, you know, I was all into the bubble. I was really enthusiastic once I got down there and realized that it was going to be safe. Everybody was going to be able to, uh, you know, get through. Uh, you know, the day-to-day life without real risk of catching COVID-19. And for me, I was concerned before I got there. And to see it kind of, you know, actually built, read the rules, live the rules, get my test every single day. I was like, wow, this is really an accomplishment. It's a great public health story. It's a great history story. It's a great basketball story. And of course, the social justice activism as well during the presidential election year, right on top of it. So you add all that together. I was like, somebody better capture all of this, right? Not to mention a Lakers title push. Somebody better be here, you know, taking diligent notes and trying to put it together. And so I figured out, uh, you know, why not be me? How long were you down there in the bubble? Were you there for the entire time? What was that experience like just covering the, the entire entire process that went on? No, I was there for 93 days, 92 nights. Um, you know, there was a few people who were there a little bit longer if they were like, you know, with one of the television networks. But I was in it for the long haul. Um, you know, my, my first day there, they checked us into a seven week quarantine period where we're just completely isolated in our hotel rooms. The only times we ever came out was to get, uh, you know, our, our swab test for COVID-19 after a week of pacing back and forth in my hotel room, kind of losing my mind a little bit. They finally turned us loose. And I was there right up until the end when, you know, LeBron James and the Lakers are spraying me with champagne in this empty gym where they're winning a title in just some of the weirdest circumstances you could ever see. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, when I look back on it, I look back on it fondly. I don't know if I would want to do it again, though. Um, and I say that because it was really hard. You heard a lot of the high profile players from LeBron to Paul George and, and right on down the list say how challenging it was. And for me personally, when I was there, you know, I put on weight. I slept worse. I felt more stress, you know, more stress, anxiety on a day to day basis. Um, you know, there was wildfires in my home state of Oregon while I was down there, you know, being 3000 miles away from my parents, worrying about them not being able to help. And I couldn't even walk three miles down the road because of the rules and the regulations. We couldn't drive. Everything had to be on charter buses. Um, you know, you had to stay on campus. You know, it was it was strictly guarded. 
And so you do feel isolated from the rest of the the world, cut off from your loved ones. And it was a very challenging experience. And so I try to get into all of those feelings that I went through. And then also, obviously, the players went through as well while they're playing in this high stakes, you know, high stress environment of the playoffs. And some teams could deal with it. Some teams couldn't. You know, you saw the Lakers thrive, the Nuggets thrive. Uh, the Miami Heat thrive, but then you look at the Houston Rockets, the LA Clippers, the Philadelphia 76ers. I mean, all those teams really had some challenges adjusting to life down there. And so that's a big theme throughout the story. You know, which teams were able to make that adjustment, acclimate and kind of roll with the punches and which ones weren't. And I've never been a roll with the punches guy. You know, I, I really am resistant to change. So it was a good challenge for me too. How skeptical Cool were you that this whole thing was going to work out when you got down there? Did you think I'm going to make it through all 92 days as far as they're going to finish the entire season? You know, you heard some players that are really hesitant about going down there, especially the ones like the Lakers that were going to be down there for a pretty long time. How skeptical are you or how nervous were you about maybe they won't even finish this season or last season, I should say? Oh, absolutely. So when I got down there, I brought a pair of, uh, you know, black and red Jordan 11, the playoffs. And I said, I don't get to wear these shoes until the playoffs start. And I was feeling pretty good because we only had to get through like two or three weeks before the playoffs, you know, the, the warm up period and the, and the um, you know, the, the eight regular season games. And so I was like, all right, I'm setting those aside for the playoffs. And I was like, all right, I brought some suits and I don't get to wear the suits until the finals. And so when I first got down there, I was like, yeah, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to get to wear, uh, you know, the playoff sneakers. But I don't know about these suits, man. Three months sounds like a long time. A lot could go wrong. One person gets sick. You know, maybe it's going to spread to everyone super rapidly. And that was really the big concern is, okay, you know, the bubble sounds great in theory, but it's only as good as the weakest link. If one player happens to get sick, it could spread really quickly through these games. It could spread to media members because we were there interviewing them and everything else. And so there was a legitimate concern and, and some real skepticism for sure. Initially, I was actually in favor of having a smaller bubble. I only wanted 16 teams rather than 22 teams. Now that would have come at the Pelicans expense because right. they weren't in the original field. And actually I, I wound up being proven completely wrong. And the NBA was proven completely right. They were able to keep all 22 teams healthy. They were able to get Zion on TV. Like I mentioned, they were able to get Damian Lillard and the Blazers in a, in a really exciting postseason chase for that eighth seed. And so it wound up working out great. But you know, my, my real concern was, did the NBA bite off more they could, than they could chew? You know, did they make too many people coming down there? Was this going to be too big of a production to keep safe? And they proved by really rigorously enforcing their rules that they could do it. You know, if you went out to get Postmates, you got thrown in quarantine. If you left your quarantine, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you got thrown into another quarantine. If you were, you know, going to a gentleman's club like Lou Williams when you weren't supposed to be doing that, well, now you're going to get thrown back into a quarantine again. And I think those types of things really help the bubble succeed. You know, without those rules, they're not going to come through with a perfect health and safety record like they did. How much confidence did it give you that with them being able to pull off the bubble like they did that this season would go off uh, pretty much unscathed? Right now, again, knock on wood, so far so good. Obviously, you, you did have some some times in the first half of the season where teams had to cancel games and there was COVID issues and tracking. But for the most part, especially now that you are seeing fans in most arenas, that the NBA is doing another great job of getting through the season with a condensed schedule. How much confidence did you have knowing that they were able to pull off the bubble that they can execute another short season um, again this year without fans? Well, the thing that had me nervous was the travel aspect to it because that's something that we just did not have to deal with in the bubble. And, you know, people complain about how hard the bubble was. The referees, the players, and the media members all agreed on one thing. It sure is not nice not to have to get on flights and to go from market to market every single night or during a playoff series, you know, change markets three or four times. It was just much easier to not deal with that. 
And so that was my biggest concern. You look, it got pretty rocky there in January, you know, but I also understand from the player's perspective, you know, they didn't want to go back into the bubble for six to nine months. And I actually think that would have been pretty damaging for a lot of people's mental health. If you were in that kind of environment, especially if you were separated from your family for that long. So I think the players just viewed that as not an option. Now, before the season, someone told me, well, the owners want their buildings back and the players want their lives back. So that's why they're going to do it this way, right? Because the owners want to start, you know, being able to welcome fans back in. And of course, you know, the revenue that comes along with that and having, you know, a real normal NBA atmosphere as soon as possible. And then the players wanted to be able to spend time with their loved ones and at least, you know, be able to enjoy the luxury life that they've earned. You know, a lot of these players are living great in big houses and driving really fancy cars and having a good day-to-day life. You know, for me going to the bubble, I live in a one-bedroom apartment. I'm driving a Ford. Okay, whatever. You know, I'm going to the bubble. No big deal. You know, if I'm LeBron and I've got a pool at home and, you know, all these, you know, home gym and all this, the idea of going to live in a Disney World hotel sounds a lot more onerous and it's it's a much bigger lifestyle adjustment. And so I think from that standpoint, you know, I can understand why they reached that conclusion. I was nervous. And certainly my heart goes out to everybody who tested positive this season. I really hope they don't have long-term lingering implications. That stuff is very serious and scary. And I'm just glad that the NBA has also embraced the vaccination process and encouraged players to do that, because I think that's the best way this pandemic ends if everybody gets their shots. And, you know, thankfully I got both my shots now. And so I'm looking forward to covering the playoffs on a more normal basis Whereas this year, I've actually been, you know, reporting a lot from home just because, you know, I haven't been feeling comfortable going into those arenas, you know, even though they do a great job with the health and safety, it just, you know, the the risk reward factor uh, has always been weighing in my mind. So I think there's brighter days. That's, you know, long story short, we're we're probably going to be looking at a, a really nice finals where, you know, we're all flying back and forth. Players are staying largely safe. There shouldn't be tons of absences from games because there really haven't been very many positive tests here over the last couple of weeks. And that's what you'd love to see. Absolutely. Uh, I'm vaccinated as well. So I'm looking forward to getting back to traveling again, hopefully next year. But yeah, absolutely. It's, it's great that, you know, things are starting to get better, I think, for the most part, and that we can't get back to normal as quickly as possible. You talked about teams that benefited the most from their time in the bubble. You mentioned, of course, the Lakers probably did the most Denver with what they did in the Western Conference Finals. Um, were there a few teams that maybe benefited from the sake of they were able to evaluate some of their guys with more time that they took it into this year as far as the momentum? I know the Phoenix Suns come to mind with me with that 8-0 run, you know, they made the playoffs, look what they were able to do in the offseason, look where they are now. Is that the team that really sticks out to you is who's benefited the most from the bubble, or is there other teams that really took away from what they were able to do at that time in Orlando? Well, I think it's a really key point. When we're going down to the bubble, people would say, well, will there be an asterisk on this? Are teams going to, you know, is the public going to view this like it counts, or is this just some sort of Mickey Mouse thing, right? People like to say that. Well, if you look at how teams responded to the bubble, they treated it and validated it as if it was a normal postseason right down the list. Um, the Phoenix Suns is a great example. They saw their guys play well together. They're young players, and they made a big financial decision to trade for Chris Paul. He had a big contract. There was a lot of other teams that were probably scared off by that. But they said, we've seen enough of our young players, whether it's Devin Booker, Bridges, Aiton, in the bubble. We know we're on to something. This 8-0 wasn't a fluke you know, during that regular season. So we're willing to make that next step and, and go for it a little bit. And that's a difficult sell. You know, uh, you know that, that franchise hasn't always been one that is the most willing to invest big money um, in players. And so I think they're, they're a perfect example. But there's others. I look at Milwaukee as well. I mean, they, they fall out in that second round, but they were still able to take a real lesson from it, too, which is, look, we've got to shake things up. We've got to go out there and target a player like Drew Holiday from the New Orleans Pelicans in a big trade. 
And you can understand why both teams, it made sense for them. You know, New Orleans is coming out of that and saying, look, Zion's our future. Brandon Ingram's our future. Lonzo's our future. We need some guys on their timeline and we need some draft pick assets to make sure that we're building this thing properly around those young guys. And for Milwaukee, they realize, look, the, the future is now. We've got to help you on this. We've got to get him whatever players we can find. You know, the biggest star player I think traded uh, before the start of the season, at least before the Harden trade, was Drew Holiday in Milwaukee going out there and grabbing him. And so I think you saw a lot of teams take big lessons about who they were, uh, you know, coming out of that bubble. And I would actually point to Philly, too. You know, they changed front office. They changed coach. Um, they trade Al Horford, a piece that really didn't fit for them. They go and grab a Danny Green and a Seth Curry to get some more shooting. And they've really, uh, you know, benefited from that racing to the top of the Eastern Conference standing. It's just like the Suns have in the Western Conference. So you add it all up. There was a number of teams, whether they struggled or whether they had success in the bubble, who took lessons from that season and immediately applied it this year as well. One of the things that the NBA took from the bubble and have used it for this season is the playing tournament. We saw it last year with, with the Grizzlies and the Blazers in the Western Conference, of course, in the East as well. But that one really stuck out to me. As far as the play-in tournament this year, I know you've heard some people, you know, the Mavericks are one of those teams that are not a big fan of it since they're the one sitting in the seventh spot right now. But uh, you look at the Pelicans, who are still in it with 15 games to go. You look at the even the East, where the Wizards, who the Pelicans just faced, were 12 games under 500 entering that game, but were one back within the play-in spot. How much do you think uh, the play-in spot is going to benefit the NBA? How much do you how much you like it, and do you think it's going to be more than just a one-year trial run? Well, it's so funny because the Mavericks were whining about it, and I actually understand their complaints. I mean, they've had a really tough season from a health and safety protocol standpoint. They're trying to race up to get that number six seed, which probably feels like you're running in quicksand a little bit. You know, it's, it's so hard in the Western Conference to climb up. And then, you know, they can't rest their players because, you know, they have to kind of make sure they're in the right position within the play and field. But, you know, I think all those kinds of arguments fall on deaf ears when Steph Curry is going out here and shooting, you know, scoring 40 plus every single night and getting everybody excited. If the play-in gives Steph Curry the opportunity to reach the playoffs, you know, and, and they get them and the, the kind of tele television interest that he generates here over the next month and into the play-in round itself and then the playoffs, I mean, that's an absolutely massive financial win for the NBA, right? And so from that standpoint, you know, if, if that's how it plays out, it's going to be hard for them to say no, because I think one thing we should not overlook the NBA is facing billions in financial losses this season. I mean, with a B, I mean, that's a huge hit to any company. And so if you find something that really does capture the public's imagination or it gets people to invest or it convinces teams to really try hard down the stretch of a season and gives their fans reasons to go buy tickets and watch games, that's, that's big. That investment and, and that, that fan retention aspect is going to be absolutely huge here as they come out of the pandemic. Because, you know, you're trying to convince people to come back into uh, stadiums and let them know it's safe and, and all those kinds of questions, right? So, to me, I think it's probably going to be here to stay, especially if they get a real epic run here from Steph. I think it's going to be hard to say no. More Steph Curry sounds like a pretty good argument, right? And, you know, by the way, more Zion Williamson, too. I mean, he's been having an insane season. He's a guy I'm sure I've talked to you about previously, how much I loved him coming out of college and, and what kind of a player he could become in the NBA. But it's the same deal. I mean, if you've got him playing these really important head-to-head -head matchups, even though you're kind of out of the playing position right now, uh, but like, you know, head-to-head -head versus Randall the other night or, or some of these other duo, duels, these matter a lot more with those playing stakes than they would if there wasn't a playing opportunity. So I think that's ultimately it's, it's probably good for the NBA, although I do feel for those teams who, you know, they feel like their whole season is going to come down to one or two games. I understand that complaint for sure, but ultimately the NBA's top priority right now 
has to be building buzz and excitement and getting people back into the sport as much as possible. I know you're, you're wanting to see more Steph Curry, but with the Pelicans chasing the Warriors, we're wanting to see less Steph Curry. <laughs> Tone it down a little bit after what he's been able to do this last week has been unbelievable. Good luck, Daniel. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. I don't know how that's going to go for you. <laughs> I don't know, but luckily the Pelicans have three more meetings against the Warriors in the last eight games, so it will rely on those games, but they still have to stay within it. As we're talking before the Brooklyn Nets game here on this Wednesday, technically podcast, before I let you go, let's talk about this Pelicans team because they are going through a little bit of a rough spot where, you know, they're, they're in a lot of these games and they're playing some really good basketball, but have been unable to close out games. You saw it on the road trip with Washington and New York with, with leads in the last two minutes and then the other team forcing overtime end up losing. With you been watching the Pelicans, they've been on national TV, you know, you cover the league. What have you been seeing from this Pelicans team that intrigues you? If they can't make the play-in tournament this year, that their future is pretty bright. Zion, Zion, Zion. Look, here's the thing. When you're team building in the NBA, when you're rebuilding like you have to after an Anthony Davis trade, there's no way around it. You know, you trade Anthony Davis, that, that means you're in a rebuilding or retooling process. The hardest thing to do is to get that centerpiece superstar level player. Those guys are so rare. And that number one pick just landed in your lap. And so you now you're running with it, right? And I think that what we've seen this year is he is a superstar, especially as an offensive player. I mean, no one has been able to find consistent answers for him. You know, like, I mean, the, the streak of what was it, 25 plus point games was just going on forever. Um, I mean, that tells you teams see that they take note of his box scores. They're making their adjustments and he's still beating them. So that tells you he's a really a rare offensive talent at such a young age. And I still think that, I mean, they did this on the fly. You know, he didn't start the season out playing this like point Zion role. I mean, this was something that kind of unfolded over the course of the season. I actually remember writing a column early in the year saying, I want more Zion. Give him the ball more. Let's try to like uh, you know, keep him even more involved in this offense. But what I think that you've learned about building around Zion this year is the importance of spacing, right? You got to get as many shooters as you can get around Zion because if he has more room to operate, He's going to be even more unstoppable. And then I think the next question is defensively, like who is the ideal person to kind of pair him with? Because I think if there's an area of growth for Zion, it's the defensive impact and it's the mobility aspect. You know, it's, it's difficult for him to cover ground um, when he's trying to go out to shooters and recover. I mean, that's hard for every big. And sometimes that takes, you know, three or four years for guys to, to learn it. But this game is so fast right now. And he has to do so much offensively. You do want to kind of find the right types of players to cover for him. And I think Adams has had some really nice moments for New Orleans, but I think longer term, what you would love to see is a center who not only can shot block and kind of help cover inside for Zion, but also on offense can be potentially a three-point shooter or a guy who can at least step out and get out of the way. Now, those guys are hard to find. They used to call them unicorns a little bit, you know, and, and they don't grow on trees, put it that way. But if you could find that type of center next to Zion, then really all you have to do is find shooters and you're set. I mean, you're going to be a really, really good team for a while. So I think to me, the biggest takeaway from the season, whether they make the play in or not, is that Zion made the leap and that wasn't guaranteed. I mean, you, you just never know how players are going to develop. And the fact that he's stayed so healthy this year, that he's uh, worked on his body, uh, it's, it's evident that the effort that he's put in there to get himself in a better place from a physical standpoint, to be able to you know, hold up under the minutes that he's played, but also just night to night to do it every single night from a consistency standpoint is fantastic. And it shouldn't be undersold. And I think that should be kind of the, the takeaway headline from this year. I mean, you've got some other things you've got to decide. Okay. Well, you know, Lonzo coming up in free agency, that's going to be a decision. Um, what's the best way to engage Ingram on offense? You know, how exactly do he and Zion fit? Those are some open questions that you kind of have to look at 
longer term. But the most important thing is you got yourself a franchise player, and that's not easy to do. Absolutely. Before I let you go, how can folks uh, get the book? Where where was it available? When does it come out? Um, yeah, those are the main questions. Uh, where can people find your book? Um, so it's Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Powell's Books, kind of wherever you get books, you can pre-order it. It's coming out May 4th. Um, so I appreciate anybody who gets it early, then it'll just show up early. And, uh, you know, I'm on Instagram at ben.golliver. So if you want to see like a uh, video preview of it, I kind of walk through some of the cool features of the book. I took a bunch of pictures when I was down there at Disney World and the publisher was nice enough to put the pictures in the book. So a famous picture of like Anthony Davis peering around the corner. Uh, I actually took that one. So that one got in there and a few other ones, uh, you know, from the celebration, LeBron sp uh, spraying champagne and, and other stuff along the way. But for Pelicans fans, you know, I do talk about Zion quite a bit in the book. You know, coincidentally, I was in New Orleans covering his first week of games when Kobe Bryant died. And so I, I talk about just, you know, hustling back from New Orleans to Los Angeles and just also how excited I was to see Zion's first couple games. And then, of course, the hype that built around Zion when we all got down in the bubble and he was the biggest story when we first got there, you know. So I think it was good stuff. Uh, I, I'm sure your listeners will be, uh, even if it's not the the best ending people wanted from the bubble, I, I think there's still stuff for Pelicans fans to uh, to dig in there as well. Yeah, looking forward to getting it as well. That's Ben Golliver writing the book Bubble Ball Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season. As you mentioned, Amazon.com, Bards Noble. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Ben Golliver, as I'm sure he has plenty of links for the book there, as he is an NBA writer for the Washington Post. Ben, I really appreciate this conversation. Looking forward to reading the book, and I appreciate the time. Oh, it's my pleasure, as always. And take care, stay safe, and all that good stuff. You too. All right, big thanks again to Ben Golliver. Keep in mind that was taped before last night's game between the Pelicans and the Nets. Unfortunately, the Pelicans fell last night to Brooklyn, 134-129. to 129. All Kyrie Irving last night, 32 points on 12 and 19 shooting as they outscored the Pelicans in the final frame, 41-37. to 37. It was a close one all the way through, back and forth, but it was Kyrie Irving making some huge shots down the stretch to secure the win for the Brooklyn Nets. So the Pelicans now 25 and 33, 14 games to go and four games back of the Spurs and the Warriors for the play-in spot in the Western Conference. Keep in mind, the Pelicans do have one more matchup with San Antonio. That's going to be a big one on Saturday night here inside the Smoothie King Center. But they also have three more matchups with the Golden State Warriors, a back-to-back -back on May 3rd and May 4th, and then another game on May 14th on the road. So if you're within three games of Golden State heading into those matchups, you can still control your own destiny by winning those three games, but still a lot of work to be done with those 14 games to go. And the Pelicans will travel to Orlando this afternoon and will take on the Orlando Magic tomorrow night. That's when we'll next talk. Unless that's if you join me on the radio side. I'll have pregame coverage beginning at 530 on ESPN New Orleans, 100.3 FM. And you can also watch on Bally Sports New Orleans, 6 p.m. Central tip-off from Orlando. It's the Pelicans and the Magic. We'll have another podcast for you on Friday, getting you ready for Saturday's matchup with the San Antonio Spurs, and we're hopefully recapping a Pelicans win from Thursday night. Big thanks to Ben Golliver, and thank you to you for joining us and making us a part of your day. Until Friday, I'm Daniel Salerson. Thanks for listening to the Pelicans podcast presented by Seeky.